You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Folks, recently I had the incredible privilege of sitting down with Ruth Haley Barden, the author of, among other books, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. She reached out to see if I'd be interested in having an ongoing conversation about the integration of systems theory and soul health on her podcast of the same name, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And uh, having recorded it, we thought it'd be really great just to put it on both of our podcasts. So yeah, this is primarily an interview that Ruth is interviewing me, but really the spirit of it was a conversation. I think there's so much great stuff that Ruth offers here that I uh, just thought I'd share these next several episodes with you as we wrap up this uh, season of MLA. So hope you enjoy. Welcome, friends, to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. And I'm back with my friend and colleague, Steve Cuss talking about managing leadership anxiety, yours and theirs. And in this episode, we're going to try very hard to wrap it up, aren't we, Steve? Even though there's many, many more things that we could be talking about. But we've titled this episode, Systems Theory and Leadership, Picking Up the Tools that Diffuse Anxiety. So Steve, as we get going, let's talk for a moment about the pace of this journey that we're on. Before we pick up these tools, what do you have to say to us about the pace and how this journey actually unfolds? I know it's, you know, particularly for people who maybe followed every episode that we've done together here, they might be getting pretty excited and saying, okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. I, I hope this is an encouragement to people. When, when we teach this at our church, it's a nine-month experience. Again, a lot in common with Transforming Community. You know, you, you have these retreats in a rhythm. People take a lot of time. At the end of nine months, we then tell people to set their stopwatch for three years and, and what we find is people get a, a quick breakthrough. They kind of learn some systems theory. They try some things. They often find that they've broken some stuck patterns quickly. But then you kind of hit a wall that's a bit deeper. And so, yeah, today we're going to cover some systems theory tools. We're going to cover some means of grace, some of the experiences that you teach. But I think as so long as our listeners understand this is long work, slow work, and, and brave work, And what I have found is how important it is to be very kind to yourself, at least as kind to yourself as God is, because even after years of doing this work, sometimes you'll get a a 15 out of 100. You'll get a 15%. And in my class, um, if somebody's come to maybe a one-day workshop with me, and we've done six or eight hours together, after a one-day workshop, the grade is one out of 20. If you can do it one time out of 20 times, that's an A+. Plus. So I would think on a podcast where you're just listening, it's probably more like one out of 50. And people might say, that's, that's not worth it. But they'll be surprised at if you can just notice some patterns and break some patterns, you really can experience a, a early breakthrough. But then yeah, after that, the long, slow work for sure. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first started studying family systems theory and our teacher said that it would take three years to start thinking systems, which corresponds to the timing you're talking about, because it is such a different way of looking at life that it, it is a very slow work to change how you actually think about relationships. And then there's the changing your own behaviors within those relationships. And that, that takes significant time. And too, courage. So. Very scary. And courage, yeah. yes. And stamina, which is one of the reasons why I was so drawn to the first tool that you talk about. 
you say that one of the most common catalysts of anxiety is exhaustion, that exhaustion can cloud our thinking. Um, it can keep us, you know, from being able to see things clearly. I also think it can keep us feeling so tired that we can't imagine bringing new kinds of intention and resolve and the stamina that it takes to change behavior and to do new things. I mean, that's one of the things I was struck by was it takes some energy to do what we're talking about here. So I was really glad that you took some time to talk about the issue of rest and needing to be rested to do these things, as well as to know your capacity to care for others and to know when you're at capacity and to pull back. And I was struck by the fact that many of us, I think, in pastoral positions wonder, do we even have the right to, to hit That's capacity? Right. That's right. Do we even get to say, I think I'm at capacity. I think I can't do anymore right now. So t- let's talk for a minute about the, the first tool, which you identify as rest and also the ability to know when one has hit their capacity yeah, in caring for so, others. It's so important, isn't it? And in, in my chapter on tools, some of the early tools are all designed to get you rest, get get your capacity lower, which is very counterintuitive for a leader, so that you can increase your resilience and your capacity to then manage more anxiety. That would be yes. in a nutshell. And so the, the idea of rest, you know, for, for our listeners that think this sounds selfish, fear not. The, the goal of rest is increased capacity for, for our type A listeners, more productivity. Hey, how about that? Um, but yeah, most, you know, most leaders are very weary. And I think the big fallacy is we think we're weary because of workload, but, but system theory teaches that we're weary for two reasons. One is because of unaddressed chronic anxiety. And the other one, Ruth, obviously very much your territory. We've forgotten the Lord. I think we just know so many leaders that lead for the Lord, but don't enjoy the Lord. Uh, I know that's both of our story as well. And so I think that can lead to exhaustion is just output, 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 not enough input. And I was definitely convicted several years ago. I, I think the passage, I can do all things through Christ, he gives me strength. It can be an unintended um, stumbling block for leaders. Because whenever I think, okay, well, how many people can I take care of and love? My answer is always one more. (laughs) And so I'm actually not able to give a number because it feels like sin for me to limit. But again, Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, constantly letting people down, getting away, enjoying the company of his friends, enjoying a playful time. Like we don't talk much about playfulness in Scripture, but Jesus obviously had a good time with his followers and all of that, yeah, leads to rest. So I'm a big believer in deep, deep, profound rest for a leader. I I think our encounters with the Lord should be very present tense. I think if they're very past tense, we get into trouble. So yeah, rest is a big deal. What about the workload scrub that you talked about? I was pretty intrigued by that. A workload scrub. What is a workload scrub? Yeah, it's such a simple tool. Mm-hmm. You, it takes a while. The very first time you do one, you basically it's a spreadsheet. And, I, you know, in the book, I lay out how to build it. So I won't go into that right now. But once you've built this spreadsheet, it takes five minutes to build the spreadsheet. What you do is you write down every single thing you do for your organization. I don't, I don't care how menial it is. If you pick up the trash, change the toilet paper, put everything down. And, so, and then in the broad categories, like, for example, preaching, I, I break preaching down into, okay, the midweek preparation, the long-term reading, the construction of the sermon, the delivery of the sermon. Those are all different items. 
But if you capture everything on your list, then what you're capturing is how much time per month does it take? Can somebody else do it? And what would it take to either hand it off or at least develop more help? And this was a big deal for me because I came to a young struggling church plant of 150. And then after several years, we were several hundred people in a building, uh, over a thousand people. And suddenly I'm doing all of the things that I was doing when we were a young church plant. I'm editing videos. I'm repairing the photocopier, like all this stuff that was keeping me from my true calling. And, and one simple reason leaders are tired is the breadth of what we're doing is simply mm-hmm. too broad. We're just doing too many different kinds of things. It wears us out. And so a workload scrub, we use it at our church to actually develop leaders. You know, what can someone else be doing that I believe only I can do? Uh, even in preaching, you know, it, for years at our church, I was the primary preacher at our church, but I can still raise up other preachers and form a preaching team. You'd be amazed at how unimportant you actually are when you do a workload scrub. The other thing, we've found a lot of traction with this with parents because as your kids grow, they can do more. So kids hate workload scrubs and mum and dad love workload scrubs. Hmm. Uh, and so we've used them in our household too to, to raise our kids up to carry more responsibility around that. I love the concreteness of that. And I think that's a lot of what I wanted this episode to be like, is that we would be talking very concretely about how we can take next steps into this managing leadership anxiety. So thank you for the emphasis on rest, because that was an awareness that I was having as I read that, that many things that you talk about in this book do take some stamina. So to, to be rested as we come to it and to see this as important work. This is self-leadership. This is an important part of our own leadership is to do this kind of work, but we need to be rested to do it. And it also takes some, you know, it it also takes some focus and time and energy to actually enter into this. What are some of your favorites? Like that was, that was one that kind of was exciting to me, but what are some of your favorites in terms of these tools that we can use? You know, it's funny is my favorite one. I almost didn't put in the book because it just Mm -hmm. felt too simple, but it's the life-giving list. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've gotten tremendous traction on this life-giving list, the simple idea that particularly leaders, we are so others-focused and mission-focused, we neglect ourselves, we believe that's selfless, but it's actually, I think, harmful. And so life-giving list is just a, a comprehensive list that you make of the people, the places, and the activities that God has given you as a gift that make you feel alive and human and encounter the love of God. And and Ruth, it's everything from um, you know means of grace like you know, solitude and stillness, the things that you've written about, all the way down to rubbing my dog's floppy ears, Hmm. sitting on the couch and holding my wife's hand. Just so, so my life giving list now has 160 items on it Hmm. because I keep going on a hunt for the love of God. Where has God been good to me? That he, God's given me these things that I cannot give to my church. If I, if I, I can't give my dog to my church, but my dog is a gift to me. And every time he sees me, including right after this interview, he will come up to me because he expects that I'll rub his floppy ears. And this may sound strange to listeners, but I, I really think being made in the image of God means that we we are moved by beauty and we are moved by delight or playfulness or wonder. And clinically speaking, anxiety and playfulness cannot coexist. So, so the two forces that displace anxiety are love and laughter. 
And so it's very important in, in the earnestness of leadership that we experience play. And I believe we should experience play on the job. We should play with our employees and we should make staff meetings should be fun. You know, they shouldn't be earnest. They should be fun. So yeah, rubbing my dog's floppy ears when I do it, I'm actually in that moment thanking God for the gift of this dog. God's so good to me, he gave me this dog. My dog has ears that are slightly longer than they should be. And it's funny. And then just the joy this dog gets out of me rubbing his ears uh, gives me joy. So that would be the life-giving list would be one of the mm-hmm. simplest tools. Anybody can do it. And I think what happens is as leaders, we get too earnest, which is evidence that we're in anxiety's grip. We get so serious, particularly with Christian leaders, where you know we, we blame God for why things are so important. Boy, I, I just think learning to play and laugh and, and bump into the love of God uh, it definitely opens the door up that I'd like to explore with you. Yeah, I mean, you wrote a whole book on on silence and solitude and stillness. I find that hard for leaders to do, particularly during the workday. Like I find a lot of people, maybe the first thing in the morning, they might be good at that. What's your coaching for us on on how those can be gifts to open us up to connecting with God? Well, unfortunately, I think that many of us who were schooled in quiet times a decade or two or three or four ago uh, began to develop solitude and so, or the quiet time as another very busy place. It's a place where I'm reading around, reading the Bible in a year or less. I'm reading around the world with this prayer list. I'm reading self-help books. I'm journaling. And we created solitude and silence as a place of Christian hard work. But I have come to understand solitude and silence as primarily a place to rest in God. So it connects very strongly with where we started, is that I think leaders need to cultivate solitude and silence as a place of rest in God, body, mind, and soul. And so that's what I'm suggesting. And I think it's very, very helpful to start the day that way, if you're able, because it's for receptivity, not for working hard. And to to start by literally being receptive to God for a few moments and letting all my human striving fall away and just being open and receptive. And then when we've cultivated solitude and silence in that way for a little bit longer periods, like maybe 20 minutes, half an hour, then we know what it feels like to be open and receptive to God. And we can actually bring some pauses into our day when we can push back from our desk or depending on how your desk is situated, you can turn your desk away from, turn your chair away from your desk and maybe look out a window or go for a walk, maybe have one of your meetings be something that you take while you're going for a walk or something like that. And you can bring the quality of time into your day, even taking, you know, time to be quiet over lunch. You know, sometimes you can be with colleagues, but sometimes for me, especially like when you and I did podcasting all day, that one day it was like, I needed to go into my office and sit and be quiet for a minute and just be open and receptive and stop thinking so hard and just rest myself in God. So um, for me, solitude and silence, I've cultivated them very intentionally as a place, first and foremost, as a place of rest in God, open receptivity without working so hard. And it, I think, contributes to the resting that we're talking about here. And it's very, very life-giving for me anyway. Um, I will admit that I am an introvert. So those times of being with God and God alone are deeply replenishing for me. And the longer I'm in leadership, the more introverted I get. Like yeah. I, I was, I really believe I've shifted personality. Mm-hmm. I was quite extroverted. Mm-hmm. And the more I'm in a public facing ministry or leadership, the more time I need alone. And so like you, I have, I have silence on my life giving list. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. I also have like the local monastery that's just Mm -hmm. up the road where you can come and they chant Gregorian seven times a day. What I love about the life-giving list is it kind of gives me homework. It it makes me hunt for the goodness of God. And then I'm surprised when I find it. So when I discovered the monastery and I never would imagine the guy like me that would enjoy chanting Gregorian with a bunch of nuns, but it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And the gift for me as a person that wants to be productive is, is like silence and solitude. Sometimes the gift is in, is intentionally not being productive, almost like that Sabbath letting go of control thing. Mm-hmm. What about some of these relational ones? Because we've been talking about how do we keep ourselves shored up? What do we do with ourselves privately? But you also named some relational patterns, tools, actually. I mean, I almost see them as being a tool that you could pull out of your tool belt at a moment when you know you need it. Can you talk about a couple of the relational ones that you really rely on or find have good effect in your life? Probably one of the most powerful and uh, simple is I just call it name the dynamic. I yeah. probably should I probably should name my tools a little better, but it's mm-hmm. called name the dynamic. Ruth, so often someone will call me or ask to Zoom or something, and they'll say, "Okay, here's what's going on," and they'll talk about a relational dynamic between them and another person. And what's interesting is they never give me the content, so I don't actually know what is going on. They tell me the way they're relating. Well, she says this and then I get all bent out of shape and then I don't Mm. like how I respond. And what do you think I should do, Steve? This is like my most common consulting call. And I, every time I just say, what would it look like to tell them what you just told me? Yes. What would that look like to bring this dynamic that's under the surface Mm -hmm. and bring it above the surface and name it in a non-accusatory, curious way? That's the fastest way to break any uh, toxic relational pattern. And once in a while, there's an exception to that rule. If you're dealing with a pathological narcissist, uh, sometimes that can be tricky. But for your average healthy person who also wants to be well and well with you, they're generally relieved. I will say when you first name the dynamic, it feels aggressive to them. I think in our church culture, we, we value non-direct conversation. We value gossip talking about people rather than to them. So I think when you first start this practice, it can feel aggressive to the recipient. But if you're doing it in a in a underneath posture, so what I do is I usually say, here's what happened. I would love to revisit it. Can we start with what was it like for you to be on the other end of me? So I'm always trying to make myself mm. the mm-hmm. so-called perpetrator first, not to be manipulative, but so that they can say, yes, yeah, Steve, here's how I experienced you. You're very defensive. You were... You kind of, I don't think you realize that you, you get a little domineering, this kind of stuff. And then I can make repair, which is another relational tool in the book. And then I can say, would, could I share how I, you know, what it was like for me? But both of you working on the dynamic together, it, it's that, that old systems rule of taking responsibility. I, I can't blame somebody when they're no longer the problem. Now the problem is the dynamic and this person and I are teaming up together to tackle this dynamic. And that's very freeing. Yeah, yeah that's probably one of the more powerful relationships. I would ones. think so, that, that that would open up all sorts of possibilities for change if, if both people are willing to own stuff. Which, you know, I appreciate you mentioning this repair work because that, that one felt very important to me too. Because I'm sure that sometimes you can start by saying, I know that I was, you know, harsh or competitive or... 
you know, whatever you might say about what you understand about your own dynamic. And again, this is where I see a connection with solitude and silence, because sometimes people in relationship and in meetings, they just want to do projecting. So that went really badly, but I'm going to project it all onto you. It was all your fault. Whereas someone who is practicing solitude and silence and self-examination, coupled, you know, with self-examination, might enter into solitude and ask God, rather than me looking for what it was about that other person, what do you want to reveal to me about me? Like, what was my part in the dynamic? And it could be that as God gives one wisdom, that you come back to the person and you actually begin with repair work by saying, you know, I know that conversation went really badly and I can see now what my part is, was in that and I, and name it, actually name that and take, take full responsibility. We could call this confession from a biblical standpoint. Right. That I'm now confessing something that happened inside me that I brought to the relationship that was destructive. And I might even know that I need to ask forgiveness in that moment. Can you forgive me for being so combative? Can you forgive me for being harsh? Can you forgive me for putting negative meanings on words that I now know you didn't even mean to be negative? And then even possibly taking it one step further in a biblical process and saying, is there anything I can do to make that right? To me, that doing the repair work was very connected with the spiritual practice of self-examination and confession, which I think is extremely valuable among Christians, and we're called to it. Confess your sins one to another so you might be healed. And then the question that you raise is still very appropriate there. You know, what was it like for you? I'm, I'm very sorry. What was it like for you to be on the other side of that? And it's healing to give them a chance to express what it was like to be on the other side of that poor behavior or whatever. So I think I think these are very powerful relational tools that have the potential to change the dynamic that we all get caught in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's important here is um, these these one-off situations are really powerful, but I think what our leaders are really striving for here is, okay, how do I then move to building an entire culture where this is normal? Mm -hmm. And so that then you have to, like what we're talking about are some reactive tools. Okay. Something happened and how do I now manage anxiety and and move towards someone in a relationship. But I think leaders also should be uh, building a proactive culture. So, for example, in our staff values at our church, uh, some very simple staff behavioral values. Uh, we will talk to each other before we talk about each other as a general rule. And the way we talk about each other must be congruent with the way we talk to each other. Just some very simple things. And I think it's unreasonable, like I'm no longer the lead pastor of our church, but when I was, I think it's unreasonable of me to expect that people would never talk about me behind my back. So so the idea on our staff was you can talk about anyone behind their back, but if you're, if you're in the habit of doing it, that's now violating our cultural values. So like I might drive someone crazy and they need to rant to a fellow peer. That's fine. I don't, I don't need full loyalty like some of that. Honor and loyalty culture I see in churches I find really disturbing. Where because you're the lead pastor, you can't be touched. You're the Lord's anointed. Oh, that's nonsense. That's like I'm an, I'm an imperfect human being. So if I do something and you need to rant, go rant. But if you keep going to that person and ranting, it's time to say, hey, have you talked to Steve? Because he's a very approachable guy. Let's go together. Or I'm, I'm not going to listen, you know, until you've done this. That's a more proactive approach to these same tools. And in the same way, like the life-giving list, the workload scrub, a lot of people always are looking for the quick thing 
Workload scrub is an annual thing you do once a year. Step aside, look at your work, scrub it. Life-giving list is not just when you're anxious, but also calendaring. Like I don't just stumble into the monastery. That's an intentional move. The last time I had an intentional life-giving appointment was right before this podcast. Two things on my life-giving list, Ruth, is mm. is a particular friend. And then I, I spend $5 more than I normally would at lunch. And I feel rich. Mm-hmm. It's just a silly, goofy thing. Mm. that just splurging a little more. So we had sushi. And I wrote a $21 mm. um, bill instead of a normal $12 to $15 bill for lunch. And I drove and you're home. you're feeling like a rich guy. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, Lord, you gave me the ability to do this. And that's a gift from you. And Because what, what we know about chronic anxiety clinically is it actually does swell up and invade your soul and it, it numbs and blocks your awareness of God. We've covered this in our previous episodes. And therefore, learning to notice when you're anxious is one of the most helpful conduits into spiritual growth and connection to God. So I think, I think, I think we're both on a, on a mission to try to encourage leaders that the most important thing they have to offer to the world is a well self. You know, a spiritually yeah. well and emotionally well self. That's that. That's what the world most desperately needs. And I think we tend to scurry around so much trying to do other things that really wears us out. So, Ruth, early in your journey, you talked about being introduced to this thing called systems theory, and that your professor even made this bold claim that if you don't understand this, you're not seeing reality. Essentially, you know, fast forward decades from then, you now integrate systems theory into a transforming center. Um, how do you see systems theory informing, helping, transforming leadership? Well, I think that the understanding of systems theory is a source of great change for us. And I think that oftentimes leaders can get to the place where they've even done a lot of good stuff with their spiritual practices, but because they haven't looked deeply at themselves and the ways that they've been formed and the systems that they've been a part of, they don't even have an awareness that their, that their behaviors are deeply patterned and that they emerge from family of origin. So they're trying to work at the level of their spiritual practices while there are psychological issues and psychological patterns that have been forged and formed early in life that have never come to their consciousness, so they have never had the opportunity to, to change them. So there's a, a kind of stuckness that we can be living in and wondering why aren't my why aren't my spiritual practices changing me you know why am i not changing more when i pray and study harder and go to more sermons and invo- engage myself in more small groups why am i not really changing and i think that this lack of understanding of systems theory and how it shapes us and forms us and then the kind of work that it would take to dismantle some of those things and uh, make make some different kinds of changes in our lives I think, you know, many leaders are stuck because they haven't been willing to look at some of the things that have been formed within them in the systems that they've been a part of. And they're actually recreating the same systems within their families and within their leadership environments because they're trying to they're trying to change it by recreating it and then trying to be different. But they're not because they haven't been willing to see themselves in this context. So I have have really experienced this work with systems theory coupled intentionally with the spiritual practices that open us to the transforming work of God to be an incredibly almost um, combustible combination. With systems theory, you can actually, you know, keep working really hard at the psychological level and not necessarily 
know how to open to the transforming work of God and the mystery, the mystical elements of our transformational journey. But on the other side, when we want to spiritualize everything without looking at our psychology, we're stuck in a different way. And so for me, sort of the combination of systems theory, the Enneagram, and spiritual practices to me, I think creates deeper levels of change, the kinds of change that are, that are really real and substantive and move us out of the stuck places that we're all in. What do you think about that? I think if we circle back to our very first episode, what would be interesting is just to get your take on, you know, a lot of leaders come to Transforming Center almost like a pilgrimage. It's, a, it's part of their annual rhythm mm-hmm. uh, as they come into your communities and participate What would be, in your opinion, one or two recurring sources of anxiety for your average leader that you're working with nowadays? Well, right now, not on the other side of COVID, but just in a different place with the COVID journey, I think one of the questions that people are coming in with a lot is, am I even going to continue in the pastorate? There's anxiety about whether or not I'm going to get people back into my church, whether they're ever going to all come back. There's anxiety about what church actually is on the other side. And then there's anxiety about, is this still even my calling? Because in COVID, I ended up doing things I wasn't even ever prepared to do. I'm not passionate about it. Is this even a calling that I want to say yes to anymore? I mean, that is the biggest little constellation of pieces of anxiety that pastors come into our communities with. And in fact, I will say that at this point in COVID, if you were to ask for a show of hands in the room about how many pastors are actively thinking and wondering about whether or not they will continue in ministry, you could say maybe even up to half or more of the pastors in the room are very anxious about whether or not people are going to come back to church, what they're going, what they're going to do with their churches on the other side, and then whether or not they still even feel called to the pastoral vocation. That's a lot of anxiety right there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And the other thing I would also say is that because we all know that COVID surfaced, areas of disagreement and controversy that were under the surface. There's a lot of anxiety about now. Now this stuff is up on the surface. We were doing pretty well at keeping it suppressed and under the surface, but now all these issues are on the surface and I, I'm not prepared. I do not know how to handle these issues. I don't know how to help a group of people move through these issues through significant conversations. There's now divisions among us that I, that we weren't even so aware of before. And I don't even feel qualified to lead the congregation through these things. I'm really at my end. So I think, I don't know if that's what you were getting at, but that's Mm -hmm. what I'm seeing. That is what I am seeing. I am, I am getting at that. And I think, um, you know, with this series that we've done together, it's, I think it's, it's so important for both of us, for leaders, for your listeners to, to remember that their own connection to God is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. It's not selfish. And it's not worth sacrificing it for the sake of others. Like it, these, like the tools that I have, the, the means of grace that you offer, they're all fundamentally designed for, this, for the same thing, which is encountering and enjoying the presence of God. And, and I think in as much as these tools do that, then they're great. And in as much as they get in the way or they're just another thing to do, they're not helpful. I totally agree with you. I think systems theory fundamentally gives us another gear mm-hmm. or another way to say this. It's a different window to climb through to get into the same house. You know, mm-hmm. whether you tackle the Enneagram or systems theory, however you like to get into the house, it's just another window. And ideally what's in that house is just 
being the beloved. I think when I'm ministering out of the overflow of my enjoyment of God's enjoyment of me, I'm really not at risk of burnout. But when I'm ministering out of the overflow of my reactivity and my need for people to like me and, oh man, I'm going to talk about racial issues, for example, knowing I'm going to get hit by some of the people in my congregation. Okay, well, that's the price I'm paying. Here I go, but I'm connected to the Lord and my sisters and brothers who see me. So so I, I know for some people, they may have listened to this whole series and think, man, that sounds like a lot of work, really hard work. I guess my closing word would be, it's, I, I promise you, having lived both ways, it's not nearly as hard as the work you're doing now that you may not be aware of that you're doing. Mm-hmm. There's low-level anxiety, there's reactivity, the, the repeating of the patterns that you're in. There really is another way to be free, and uh, you can be free indeed, and I hope hope people try a few of these and find some great relief. Mm-hmm. You know, I would also add to the idea of the house that, you know, finding ourselves to be the beloved, that there's also this desire to change, like to be transformed in the presence of Christ, that our quiet times, if you will, or our encounters with God, they should be changing us somehow, <laughs> you know, and I think many leaders right now are hitting up against the limits of who they know themselves to be. And they realize that if I'm going to bring anything that's of meaning or life giving right now, I have to keep growing and changing. So there's the cultivation of the relationship with God that reassures us of our belovedness. And there is this longing to change and to not keep bringing our deforming selves to leadership, but bringing something transformational because the best thing we bring to leadership is our own transforming selves. And if we do bring a transforming self to our leadership, the system will change. The very definition of systems is that the system will have to change, you know, that when one person in the system changes, the whole system changes. And so when we um, enter into a greater intentionality around our relationship with God, through these tools, the Enneagram, family systems theory, the means of grace that spiritual practices are, that eventually we begin to change, even though we don't even know it, even when we're not aware of it, we start to change. We start to bring a more differentiated self. Um, And I think that's another aspect I would bring here, that the challenge for leaders right now is to not get caught up in the glom of all the anxiety but to continue to differentiate their, themselves and their calling and who they are and what they're going to be and what they're going to bring and allow that differentiation to change the system in positive ways, even if at first there's resistance to the change, to stay the course, to refuse to change back, to believe that God's within us calling us forward and that that will be what ultimately brings about changes within our systems. But it takes stamina So I'm grateful for the emphasis on rest and let's enter in through the doorway of rest and bring a rested self so that the self that we're bringing brings about good change versus bringing an anxious presence. Yeah, Ruth, it's been delightful to get to do these with you. Thanks very much for inviting me on. And yeah, it's been a fun conversation. I know this is the beginning of a journey for a lot of people, but um, yeah, I appreciate the time we've gotten to spend together. Thank you so much, Steve, for your great book. And I hope many people will rush right out and at least order it on Amazon and take advantage of these tools and manage themselves well so that what happens in and around them is good for themselves, glorious to God, and also is good for those around them that they've been called to serve. Bless you in your ministry. Amen. Thank you. 
Friends, if you're listening to this in May or June or any time around there in 2022 or afterwards, then the Calm Aware Present Journal is available for pre-order. We're placing orders in May and then in June. You can go to www.stevecusswords.com. And depending on when you click on it, that'll either link you to the Kickstarter campaign for pre-orders or if you're a little after that, it'll link you to the Capable Life page where you can place your order We'll be delivering journals in August. As we've been saying over and over, everybody needs an intentional proven path. And the Karma Aware Present Journal is a 12-week journey, giving you a new tool each week, as well as daily reflection questions, midweek pause, and then an end-of-week reflection to help you lower reactivity and increase connectedness. So if you want to know more, go to www.stevecuswiz.com and you can click through to place a pre-order for your Calm Aware Present Journal. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.